So we're back with the Michael Calderon show and, uh, and hopefully everyone has, uh, has been doing well. And uh, we're, we're during, we're actually during Hanukkah. So uh, we're during the, uh, the eight days of Hanukkah and uh, we just, uh, we just had Thanksgiving uh, last week, which was uh, hopefully also enjoyable for folks to get together. And um, today's guest is uh, Dr. Helena Darwin, and uh, I'm very, very uh, honored that, that she has accepted the invite to come on. Uh, how are you today? I'm doing well. I'm really impressed that you pronounced my name right. Oh, wonderful. Look at that. <laughs> That's so rare, and it's always an awkward beginning of conversations with people. It is. It is. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm glad I passed the first test. Yeah. Great start. Thank you. Thank you. And and I'm so happy that that you're joining us today. Um, my co-host Vanessa was unable to join us today, um, but she'll uh, she'll be back soon. I'm sure. Um, and you know, th there's so many things that that I want to talk to you about, and so many questions that I have. Um, and, you know, from, from your background to, to your work, your work has really fascinated me. I know we've, we've connected through Twitter, which I think is a, is a great platform uh, when, when you have some commonality with folks. I don't even remember how we connected, quite frankly, because uh, I think it's been a while. And, and I know that uh, we've been working on you know, trying to align our schedules to make this interview happen. Yeah, well, I'm glad that we finally did. We probably connected through something like um, my scholarship on religion and gender being amplified through the journal Sociology of Religion and other religion handles with a lot of followers, but maybe not. Who knows? Who knows? The I point don't know. Is, we were talking before you hit record about how amazing Twitter is in enabling you to get beyond sort of the confines in Facebook land of people who know you from your past and who maybe you know through circumstance like where you grew up and isn't necessarily about who you are now and what your interests are now and does it help you grow your network really? And then Twitter is all about what you're thinking right now what you're interested in right now. And that is where you're able to really build up a network of people who get you and who have common ground with you in more ways than you might realize and really helps you expand your horizons and connect with new people. And as we just discovered before clicking record, I live in your old neighborhood. So right. a common ground could be way more than you could ever imagine. Just Absolutely. What brought you together in the first place? Absolutely. And, and you know, I often say I remember a time when people used to talk about six degrees of separation. Mm -hmm. And that has changed with social media. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, you know, I, I find at least for me personally, as I get older, you know, um, the circle gets smaller. Mm -hmm. And what I find is that I run into people or I meet new people who know someone, you know, will have a mutual friend in common uh, or multiple. And, and really, there's no more six degrees of separation. It's really like one or two degrees. Right. You know, and, and to your point, I mean, I, I think 
we're all we're all a lot more alike than we are different, mm-hmm. if you will. And uh, you know, I see that I see that quite often, and and I officiate at a lot of interfaith weddings, you know, and uh, and and you know, you see the commonality. Although people may come from different backgrounds, cultures, traditions, and religions, um, there really are a lot of similarities across the board. And that's yeah. what I love to focus on, you know, and, and, and actually let's, you know, um, let's, let's start with that. Cause I know. Within our marriage. No, no. About, um, about. I am intermarried and I tweet about that. Oh. It's actually a very hot button issue in the Jewish community. I didn't realize that mm-hmm. I've missed that. Yeah. I left a religious community because as progressive as they said they were. I found out that one of the rabbis refused to officiate intermarriages. And I was pregnant with my second child with my non-Jewish husband. And it's pretty hard to accept that your religious leader doesn't, you know, basically believe that you and your partner should be together or that your children should exist. So I left that community and now I'm in one where the rabbi um, was basically debarred from conservative Judaism after becoming ordained through them because he refuses to perform any marriages until he can perform all marriages. And um, wow, coming at that from the perspective as a gay rabbi and caring about marriage equality. But I'm second generation in our marriage. My parents were intermarried. And I saw how much it hurt my dad to not be allowed to have a Christmas tree in the house since it was something meaningful to him from his childhood. So I sort of like observed one way of doing intermarriage and pieced together what I wanted to do differently. So we have a Christmas tree in our house every year, but you know, I also don't swallow all of my ambivalence about the Christmas season as a religious minority and, you know, just sort of wrestle with it throughout the month of December every year with a Christmas tree in my house. (laughs) And do do you have a menorah also? Yeah, of course. Yeah, I mean, we we do a lot of things with my Jewish community. My husband isn't actively affiliated with any religion. He just isn't Jewish. Um, So we do. Yeah, my my Jewish community is our religious community. Okay, excellent. Mm -hmm. And 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 see, I I didn't even realize that when I and I started talking about interfaith marriages. So you see. in Judaism, they would say beshert, right? That was meant to be. Uh, I guess. I mean, I grew up Reformed Jewish, so we didn't have any of those phrases flying around. And I okay. had to sort of acclimate to New York Jewish culture during the 10 years I've been here. And uh, a lot of expectations that I know things that I don't know. And that things that are part of New York Jewish culture are not, in fact, part of all Jewish culture. Correct. A lot of diasporic Jews within the United States who are living without any community around them and who don't know any Yiddish phrases. Right. And actually here in South Florida, mm-hmm. we have a very large, you know, uh, New York Jewish population. Right. Right. So a lot of the Jewish culture from New York probably has uh, migrated to Florida as well. But, you know, 
I've sort of been working on a concept that I never put into writing called Jewish privilege. And it's not what anti-Semites on Twitter use that handle to talk about, but more about the notion that like, there are certain ways of doing Jewish that are viewed as more legitimate than others. And mm. people who happen to have been born into dense Jewish populations and grown up just sort of absorbing a lot of education about Jewish culture and what it means to be and do Jewish, just sort of can effortlessly tap into these things in a way that people who are perhaps growing up as the token Jews in their neighborhoods don't have and didn't have access to. But that doesn't mean that they're less Jewish than these people who grew up in other circumstances or that they care less or that it's a less salient part of their identity. And in fact, it might be a more salient part of their identity because they grew up having that be the thing that made them different and having to defend it and explain it to people all the time instead of just taking it for granted. And yet there does seem to be a lot of Jewish gatekeeping in New York as though the New York way of doing and being Jewish is the right way and everybody else needs to learn it in order to participate. So I feel like that's something that needs to be talked about more and pointed out to the sort of snooty gatekeepers of Judaism that like they didn't earn that, they were just born into it and to maybe check their selves a little bit and understand that it's not a meritocracy. Um, but anyway, you know, this whole thing only speaks to 2% of the American population. So I don't need to go on about it. I'm sure most <laughs> of your listeners are not in fact Jewish. Well, that's all right. But, but you know, it, it applies and, and, and it's something significant to you and you're today's guest. So, you know, there's no, no problem here with discussing that. Um, in fact, one of the things I wanted to mention uh, before we started talking about, you know, interfaith marriage, so to speak, um, was the fact that that you are a graduate of the Jewish Theological Seminary of America. Um, and and if, if I'm not mistaken, that's the one on Broadway and like 123rd Street in Manhattan, yep. right? Right. Yep. Right down yeah. from Columbia University. Nailed it. Yeah, it's uh, right next to the Manhattan School of Music and Sakura Park. Right. So, so I, I, I think when you first entered, I had read that that you were you were looking to pursue uh, studies to be a female rabbi. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, I originally wanted to be a therapist and then realized during college that I uh, wasn't sure that I had the emotional fortitude to spend all day talking to children who are going through the absolute worst, uh, most heartbreaking things that kids can be going through. And that I just, I, I wasn't built for that. And so uh, at that time, I started to turn back to Judaism after exploring a lot of other like Eastern traditions and getting heavy into yoga and everything. And I came across a quote from the Dalai Lama talking about how uh, before going into a different religion, you should really do everything in your power to make sure that you have given a shot to the religion that you were born into and that you were born into that religion for a reason. It was your karma to be born into that religion. 
and you should really try to see if you can make that work. So I, I felt like that was something I needed to take seriously and realize that there were a lot of different ways of doing Jewish than the one that I found uninspiring growing up and did a little research and found a denomination called Jewish Renewal, which um, arose during the 1960s in the United States in response to how many American Jews were finding Eastern traditions more appealing, such as um, yoga and Buddhism and everything, and found out that the one in my city was right at the base of my campus. So I felt like that was really karmically ordained and started going there a lot and really fell in love with it and realized, oh, well, I'm also really interested in community building and ritual leading. Maybe I'd be happier as a rabbi than as a therapist. Um, and so I started really devoting myself to learning more about Judaism and Jewish ritual and looking into opportunities to pursue the rabbinate through my rabbi and found a program that I could do where he would be my in-person teacher. And a few times a year, I'd go to like a big retreat with other people in the program. And then my rabbi died in a freak snorkeling accident. Oh. He was officiating a wedding for an older child from a previous marriage of his and uh, went out into the water with his wife and his twin boys who were under 10 at the time. And the kids got tired and wanted to go back to shore and he told his wife to go ahead and that he was really enjoying the view. And those were his last words. And they thought that they saw him waving at a certain point and hours went by and then his body washed up. Oh, I'm so sorry. So, yeah. So that was a really big turning point in my life. And I realized, oh, you know, I don't really know if it was just this rabbi who I had a really special connection with or Judaism. And I really need to figure that out before I decide what to do with my life and didn't, you know, know what to do. And so decided I should get a master's in Jewish studies and really feel out whether this was something I wanted to commit to before trying to get into rabbinical school. So I got into one program in San Francisco at, um, at the Graduate Theological Union next to Berkeley, and then also JTS and decided, you know, I've done the interfaith hippie thing my whole life. What I haven't done is like kosher restaurants, Orthodox Judaism, New York City culture. So decided to take a chance and move from California to New York. Uh, but I realized pretty quickly that I wasn't interested in be being a rabbi, that there was too much within Jewish doctrine and dogma and uh, tradition that I disagreed with and that I would be really unhappy feeling like I was a representative of all of that and having to sort of do all the emotional labor and interaction with congregants who I strongly ideologically disagreed with in order to make it work as a rabbi and um, instead got a PhD in sociology where I could focus on social inequality issues. 
and thought that I'd be a professor and that didn't pan out. So now I'm doing something completely different and going into UX research, user research for technology and uh, just gonna, you know, host moon circles in my backyard in my time after I clock in my 40 hours a week and have my spiritual and religious life on my own time and make as much money as I can during my work hours. And, and that I've developed on this incredibly meandering, wandering road. <laughs> and, and you went on to get a master's in sociology at Stony Brook and then your PhD at Stony Brook as well. Yeah. And going back to to uh, the Jewish Theological Seminary, mm -hmm. um, I I thought I either read or maybe heard in, in a past interview there there was some kind of correlation that you mentioned about gender. Oh well, I mean I chose JTS in part because they allowed me to have a concentration in Jewish women and gender studies there. Got it. Okay. And I was contemplating the reality of being a female rabbi and wanted to really understand what that would mean, what that would entail, uh, what I would be up against, and whether it was too patriarchal of a tradition for me to want to go down that road. So I did a lot of readings on um, the struggle of female rabbis, what they encounter, uh, the different attitudes about women in positions of the rabbinate. I also did Birthright Israel and encountered a lot of uh, troubling attitudes about that when I was taking free classes at Eish HaTorah by the Kotel, by the Western Wall in Jerusalem. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's sort of like a belief among the more conservative patriarchal forces in Judaism that for a woman to go against the grain to try to become a rabbi is a mark of pure hubris and ego and power hungriness. That a man who pursues the rabbinate isn't similarly exhibiting because he's not going against the cultural grain to pursue it. And thus, like any woman who tries to become a rabbi is suspect and is someone who should not have power because they're obviously just power hungry. It's, and but would yeah. you say though that that folks in the Reform Jewish movement um, feel that way? Because no, 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 no. Okay. this isn't Reform. Asha Torah is um, as like Orthodox Jewish as you can get. Yeah, and that's uh, that's why they do free classes because they're kind of evangelizing to the. American and Canadian Jewish tourists who come through and are eager to do free classes. So uh, they're trying to get people to ultimately make Aliyah and move to Israel. Right. Because we, we do have a few uh, female rabbis here in South Florida. Uh, mm -hmm. One in particular that comes to mind, I'm, I'm pretty sure uh, Rabbi Cheryl Jacobs, I'm pretty sure she's a, a graduate of the Jewish Theological Seminary as well. Oh, cool. Uh, her husband's a rabbi also, um, and um, they're, they're at uh, Ramat Shalom, which is here in, in uh, Plantation, and she's also a police chaplain. Mm -hmm. um, so I, uh, I've known them 
for many, many years, probably ever since I moved to Florida. And, and yeah, you know, coming down from New York and meeting her for the first time, she was the first female rabbi I ever met in my okay. life. Oh, wow. You know, because I, I don't recall ever meeting a female rabbi in New York. Really? Yeah. But, you know, it's just, hmm. you know, it's just one of those things. But but she was the first female rabbi uh, that I met. Um, and, you know, we, we've done a lot together over the years. Um, so it's just interesting. You know, obviously, I know. Uh, in conservative Judaism, in Orthodox Judaism, they would not have a female rabbi. No, conservative Judaism ordains women now. Oh, Orthodox do they? Okay. Judaism is the only denomination that doesn't. Okay. Um, yeah, conservative Judaism does. And I went to JTS with a whole lot of women who were there to become rabbis. Okay. Yeah. Thank and you for clarifying that. JTS is sort of like the flagship of conservative Judaism in the world. So yeah, that's it, tons of women there getting ordained. And also um, gay people can now be ordained as rabbis in the conservative denomination also. Okay. Just, just not intermarried people. Got it. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. And even reform Judaism only very recently, or no, renewal Judaism only very recently changed the rule so that intermarried people can be ordained. Yeah, and, and for years we had uh, Rabbi uh, Greg Cantor down here in South Florida, who's an openly gay rabbi. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he moved um, out of the area, I want to say moved possibly up to the Carolinas. But, um, you know, he was here for many years, very well respected and, and officiated a lot of weddings. I've co-officiated ceremonies with him. And um, in my lived experience, the rarer thing than having a female rabbi or a gay rabbi is having a, a, a Jew of color rabbi. So um, ethnic and racial minorities within the Jewish community really struggle against a lot of erasure because of white Ashkenazic Jewish culture being really aggressively dominant and um, sort of claiming normative status at the expense of all the other ways of doing and being Jewish. And so people who are not white and are Jewish really struggle to be seen as Jewish and to be respected as members of the community and not have constant questioning at gatherings about, oh, are you a visitor? And um, yeah, so it's very powerful to go to services led by, um, you know, members of, it's called JOC as a shorthand for Jews of color, members of the JOC community who, you know, make it to the point of becoming a rabbi and are able to try to normalize that and speak to those issues to their congregants. Um, Interesting. It's a lingering issue. Okay. Now, now I, I know you've also done a lot of work on the body positive movement, mm -hmm. as well as uh, the gender binary system. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering if we could, we could talk about that as well. Of course. Yes. So tell us about the body positive movement. <laughs> what do you want to know? Well, kind of uh, t tell us kind of the, the, the core of that movement, if you will. 
All right. Well, that is sort of what I interrogate in my research. Um, I, I don't really think there is a body positive movement. I think that it's a bunch of satellite movements that are working towards different but related causes that have all been lumped over this phrase that got a lot of media traction. Um, but if you really look at what each of these satellite movements is fighting for, sometimes they're contradictory. And I think that's why it hasn't made as much of an impact on our culture as people would have expected it to by now, 20 years in. Um, and 20 years in, by that I mean of that phrase being out there, it actually, I think, goes back to the Miss America beauty pageant protests of the 1960s and 1970s and feminist women really fighting back against a lot of the mainstream beauty ideals that were really harmful and um, really wanting to normalize that there are lots of different ways to be a beautiful woman. And at the same time, um, black women started the Black Miss America pageants because black women weren't allowed to participate and started you know, fighting for the notion of black is beautiful and trying to uh, make that known to the mainstream. So, and then at the same time, fat positivity started up as a movement and so did a lot of disability rights activism. So all of these movements that we still see today in body positive imagery have their roots in the 1960s and 1970s. Um, and I think kind of like continued to exist separately and then suddenly all came together under this heading but perhaps by force, by outside sources, because still, if you really look at what different body positive activists are fighting for, some people are looking at it as a body image psychological issue of like, everyone hates their bodies. This is a big issue. Like no matter what you look like, you could be struggling with body image issues. And we need to encourage everybody to love their bodies more. And so you see all of these selfies with body positivity hashtags, even by people who look perfectly beautiful and normal by media standards, um, who are struggling to love themselves or maybe have recovered from eating disorders. And that's actually them at their heaviest and they're really proud of being at that point or whatever. Um, but then you have criticisms of that mainstream movement and the way that it's been absorbed into advertisement campaigns as like, you know, all these body positivity things are barely challenging what we consider beautiful in our society. It's a bunch of perfectly normal looking women and you're saying this is body positive. Like what about those of us who still aren't seen as attractive and why aren't you centering us in the campaign? And so that's a more sociological framing that's about like rights and inequality and ties into things like sizeism and people of a certain size having to buy two airline tickets to take up two seats or um, 
I mean, so many other things, but also, so, so the fat positivity movement that claims that it is body positivity and that nothing should call itself body positivity unless it's featuring sizeism as a primary issue is another contingent. But then it gets criticized for being overly white and also very gender normative in who is featured in those campaigns. And so then you have um, the group, The Body Is Not An Apology, talking about how we really need to focus on the notion of body terrorism and like real intersectional issues of inequality and centering the people who are the most oppressed and the most marginalized and told to hate their bodies the most and experience body violence the most within these campaigns. Because once our society comes to a point where we can love those bodies, it'll love all bodies. Um, so that's another sociological framing. And then the fourth framing I talk about is body neutrality, which is again, a psychological framing, but saying, you know what? Asking anyone to love their bodies may be a bit much. Like if the issue is all these people hating their bodies, struggling to love their bodies, can't we just like get people to stop focusing on their bodies so much at all? or what they look like at all, right. just like shoot for body neutrality maybe, and like not self-objectifying in the name of self-love. Uh, so that's the fourth frame that I see coming up as a dominant frame. So all four of these frames, mainstream body positivity, which is more psychological, body neutrality, which is more psychological, fat positivity equals body positivity, which is more sociological, and um, radical body positivity, which is the intersectional one, which is also more sociological. All four of these are coexisting under the body positivity label in our media. And yet, I mean, if you really look through a frame analysis lens at what they're about, they're, they're, not, they're not the same movement. Right, right. And, and uh... Would you say social media, wh wh where, where is social media uh, in terms of impacting people's image of their bodies? Well, that's hard to say. I mean, there are so many different um, realities within social media and so many different echo chambers, depending on who your network is. So I feel like people who are really active in fat positivity are gonna see more body positivity hashtags used by people who are part of the fat positive community. Um, kind of fitspo, fitness inspiration, Instagrammers who are showing off their very, very, very fit, very thin bodies that they work very hard to cultivate under the hashtag body positivity because they're loving their body and encouraging other people to do what they're doing in order to then love their body, are also using body positivity hashtags, but in a way that perhaps does more um, harm to the self-image of the people in their audiences because it's selling a very difficult to attain type of body that requires basically full-time dedication to it and no other job. Um, and That's a good point. <laughs> genetics. 
Um, I'm actually, I'm very thrilled to see that that male celebrities who have to do really extreme things to attain the male body ideal for movies are starting to talk more about like, this was really unhealthy for me. I was obsessed about every single thing that I was putting in my body. I knew my weight every single morning. This was a full-time job. Do not think otherwise. And like spreading awareness around that, about like this type of body is a job. Like do not expect to right. have this body unless that is what you are doing all day. Exactly, exactly. Um, shifting gears a bit, sure. I, I do wanna um, take an opportunity to also talk about uh, your second book, um, Me Too PhD. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. A, a trauma memoir. A trauma memoir. Yeah, the yes, trauma yes. part is key to that. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Yeah. So, sure. Well, I haven't talked about my first book yet. Okay. Um, okay. So just since the second book is still not even under contract anywhere, and not, um, I, I, I don't know where it's at in terms of its materialization as an actual book. However, I do have an actual book, which is available for purchase now, called Redoing Gender, How Non-Binary Gender Contributes Towards Social Change. Um, and that book is very exciting to me. I'm very happy that it's coming out. It's with Paul Grave McMillan, and it's available on Amazon and also Barnes and Nobles for 25 bucks. Um, and I tried really hard to write this book in a way where everyone could read it and not just academics, which made it very difficult to get a contract for because there's a lot of genre gatekeeping among academic presses about what an academic book should look like. And it's supposed to be incredibly theoretically dense with a ridiculous amount of citations of other people's research um, and just sort of in general off-putting to people outside the academy. So this is what's called a cross-marketed book, meaning that it'll be marketed towards academics, but also towards general reading audiences. Um, and I really had to fight for that. But I felt really strongly about it because I feel like there's a lot of confusion and even fear and anxiety among cisgender, which means you're the gender you were assigned at birth, you've never changed your gender or um, ex you know, really explored whether your gender is the best fit for you. So that's called cisgender. Uh, but cisgender people seem to have a lot of confusion and anxiety when confronted by things like people who tell them, hi, my name is Kai and my pronouns are they, them, theirs. And not really knowing what to make of that, maybe making fun of it or dismissing it or whatever. And just sort of like a big lack of empathy and understanding of what is going on in that non-binary person's life to get them to the point that they even felt brave enough to announce their pronouns to a stranger. And, you know, what what goes on in their daily life in their effort to be recognized as who they are, which is not man, not woman, but something else, which sometimes requires an adjustment to language 
and ways of relating. And, um, you know, even when it comes to the types of automatic survey forms that websites generate as required fields to complete that completely erases these people and puts them in a dilemma of, do I participate in erasing myself or do I go along with this to try to secure this desired or even needed product? So my book aims to just really sensitize cisgender readers to the labor of being and doing non-binary gender and how much just micro scale effort non-binary people have to put in internally while they're questioning their identity and exploring options and interpersonally when coming out to people and also maybe changing their gender expression through how they look or their name. And also institutionally when they're at work or when they're at school or when they're trying to update government paperwork or when they're just trying to get a Netflix account and having to deal with what I call the binary box dilemma where they're constantly asked, are you male or female? Are you man or woman? Right, right. Um, so and, yeah, and, and I'm seeing a, a lot more. Uh, I'm receiving a lot more emails, let's say, from people, um, both from nonprofit organizations as well as some governmental organizations, where their pronouns are in their email signature. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and uh, and some of them are cisgender, mm -hmm. but they still, you know, will list their pronouns. Yeah. Um, do and you that's, think a, that's an ally trying to signal to people that they are an ally. Correct. To Correct. Try to normalize the practice of um, disrupting the illusion that you can assume. And right. I actually feel like that's become more important during distance learning, where people don't necessarily know anything about the people they're interacting with besides the names that are being automatically generated for them through the school system which may not even be the names that they actually use. And you really can't assume based on someone's name what their gender is. Uh, do, you, do you think we're gonna eventually see um, pronouns as the norm in people's email signatures or social media profiles? I mean, I'm certainly seeing a lot more. And, and let me just back up a little bit. I. I learned about pronouns uh, last uh, earlier this year, no, last year, um, uh, because uh, here in Broward County, we have a, uh, a committee that was formed, and it's the LGBTQ plus committee in Broward County, and it's uh, the, the uh, composition of the, of the committee is, is mostly governmental agencies police, fire, and city governments, and, and a couple of state government uh, members as well. And that's when I learned about pronouns. And, uh, and you know, I, I, um, I, I think it's, a, it's an, evolving, an evolving issue with the use of pronouns and how people are identifying um, and, 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 and also the, you know, the acceptance the social acceptance of the use of pronouns. Right. Well, my 
thoughts and practices related to <clears throat> pronoun disclosure have shifted over the years while working on this project because this was my dissertation that I then turned into a book. So I've been working on this for seven years now. Um, wow, that's a long time. Yeah, yeah. And that's been a very like pivotal time frame for pronoun disclosure practices kind of becoming more mainstream in certain circles. So there have been a lot of discussions around it that I've followed. Um, right now, I'm of the stance that it's very, very, very dangerous to assure a non-binary or a trans woman or a trans man employee or prospective employee or even student to um, trust that it is safe to disclose that fact about them to their superiors and their colleagues. You can't promise that. Even if that's what you hope to be the case, the reality is that encouraging them to do it, even if they may be hesitant about it, might put them in a situation that's unsafe for them and um, that it should 100% be optional because well-intentioned, though the movement may be by allies who want everyone to do it, it could be hurting the very people you're trying to be an ally to. So like until society is in fact at a place where everybody's cool about it, you can't expect the most vulnerable people to expose themselves like that when their livelihood is on the line or where they might go back to the dorms and be harassed by classmates who now know that they're trans or non-binary. You just, you don't know what's gonna happen outside of that discussion with the people who now know that information. So while it is great that it's something that allies feel really safe about doing and encouraging other people to do, um, the notion that everyone should have to do it is flawed. And also it's important to note that not all non-binary people use they, them pronouns. And that doesn't, you know, make them less non-binary or anything like that. They just might not care about pronouns or they might prefer a different set of pronouns that corresponds with a binary gender um, as more affirming or something they're more comfortable with. Um, and also that, you know, some people use multiple sets of pronouns. Some people who are non-binary or trans just don't care and feel resentful that they have to clarify and have to specify because that either means that they're outing themselves or that they're purposefully misgendering themselves and would rather just have people use whatever they decide to use or assume. Um, especially for agender people who may really not care about gender on principle and get kind of irritated with how much other people do care about gender. Uh, forcing them to specify a pronoun can be, you know, a microaggression unto itself. Right. And what would you say was kind of the the motivating force for you to to really do so much work on gender? Um, I mean, it was twofold. 
one part is more personal history oriented and one part is more just intellectual curiosity. Um, but so the personal history part is that I led women's circles for a really, really, really long time, like a really long time. Um, and I felt very strongly about the need for women's spirituality movements and all women's um, spaces and embracing the goddess in all of her forms and doing full moon circles and all of that. Um, and it wasn't until I was in a community where there were a lot of non-binary people who, um, you know, were expressing behind the scenes how irritated they were with this and leading to sort of a more generalized reluctance among people to participate that I was introduced to the notion that what I was doing could possibly be harmful in any way. And I was really defensive and resistant against that and felt like third wave feminism was going too far and not even letting women be proud of being women before expecting us to move on to not caring about gender and decentering it and that it was skipping a step and um, really, really didn't get it. And then I had my first transgender studies classes at Union Theological Seminary through consortium with JTS, uh, where there are a lot of queer people getting ordained and had some more conversations with people and more readings about these issues and still felt very defensive and really struggled with what I was hearing and what I was reading and um, felt very like biologically essentialist. In other words, you know, like menstruation and childbirth are, uh, you know, in, an intrinsic and central part of the experience of being a woman and um, you know, women need to have space to bond with over women over what this means. And it wasn't until I um, really got into sociology that I realized, wait a minute, all of these gender theories are about men and women, men and women, and none of these are acknowledging that there are other genders at all. And that might be really missing out on some rich room for theory. And at the same time, I had recently become a mother and started hanging out with other moms by default because of a lack of community and just being desperate for socializing and so finding mothers groups and realizing I had nothing in common with these people except for the fact that we all had babies and that maybe menstruating and childbirth and everything wasn't really enough to have a meaningful relationship with people and to feel that there's common ground. And then I started to realize this more when I went to women's spiritual gatherings too. It's like, wait, but I don't have anything in common with these women, except that we're all women. And just kind of got disillusioned with the whole thing and started thinking about how much men were missing out on by not having that type of space where empathy and communicating the depths of our experiences are 
going on and that men probably need it even more than women do and how messed up it is not to invite them or include them. And um, the more I dove into transgender studies, when I started noticing that it's messed up, that it's not in gender theory and sociology, started realizing, oh yeah, I mean, these people really need to have the gender affirming experience of being welcomed into these circles too. And like, why can't we just have spiritual circles that are open to anyone who need that type of connection and isn't about gender in a way that reduces it to genitals. Um, and so at that point I stopped participating in women's circles at all. It just felt like it was morally and ethically too complicated for me to participate in. Um, and also realized that I had a very particular voice as a cisgender person who had created these exclusionary spaces to um, write this book that speaks in a very specific way to other cisgender people who might be struggling with these very same things that I can relate to struggling with because I have been there. And um, really just, I don't know, part of it is an apology to the community that I did harm to. Um, and part of it is just really wanting to center non-binary gender and gender studies as probably the most fruitful place to focus if you really want to understand the restrictive impact of our gender binary system. Wow. That was and, a really and... long answer. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay, though. I mean, you know, you you went into certain detail that I think is good for for our listeners and certainly yeah, helpful back to religion and spirituality, right? You know, and, and, and helpful to me. And, and let me say, you know, this show is not, although I am a clergy, mm -hmm. um, you know, this show is not religious in nature. Oh, I know. I know. You and and it, it just so happens that, you know, there, there are relevant topics here with you and, and, um, um, you know, I, for, for me, it's, it's all fascinating. Um, and, and I will admit that, you know, um, a lot of, and this, I, I think it's why I'm, I'm listening so much more than I normally uh, speak. You know, no, normally I'm a lot more talkative during interviews, but um, I am fascinated by the work. I'm also, um, you know, this is not an area that I'm well-versed in. So, mm -hmm. You know, uh, I know what I know, and I and sometimes I know what I don't know. You know, so uh, for me, I, I try to be as open-minded as possible and to really learn. Uh, I'm, I, and and I think we share that in common is that we're lifelong learners. You know, and and I love listening to people um, who who are bringing information that is something I'm not well versed in. You know, it can be somewhat anxiety provoking sometimes, um, but, you know, it's all part of the process of life, you know, and, uh, and for me, uh, again, it, it's what I enjoy doing. I love reading books, particularly on topics that I'm not well versed in because I want to learn. I want to learn more. And, and, and I'll ask, you know, the questions that I need to ask that are going to help me to, to be, you know, more versed on a you know, uh, on a particular subject. Um, 
And, and I want to talk about, and, and, and I know, you know, we've been on a while and I appreciate your time. Um, hopefully you're not sending me an invoice. Um, the, uh, I, I do want to talk about Me Too PhD, a trauma memoir. And, and I know that um, you, you recently transitioned out of uh, the academic world, if you will. Um, so, so tell me about, about a trauma memoir. Sure. Um, so first of all, transitioning out of academia has been amazing. It has been so, so good for my well-being, for my happiness as a person, for the life opportunities I see open to me, uh, realizing I can move closer to family and just work a job and have my life be what I want it to be. Uh, so highly recommend to those who are feeling stuck in academia. You do not have to stay there. You can, in fact, transition to a different job and have more choices in your life and be paid better, much better. Like much better. Much. And, and, yeah. and, and, I, and I'll just jump in on that because I, um, I have been an adjunct at, at several different universities. Um, and, and I don't know that the public or even the students realize the amount of work that goes in to, uh, to teaching and particularly, you know, at, at the university level and, and how, you know, you're paid for the hours of the class, but you're not paid for preparation and you're not paid for grading, which both those things, preparation and grading, if you're, if you're trying to be good at what you do, takes time and takes a lot of time and takes more time than it does to teach the class. Oh yeah. So, yeah. you know, anyone in the academic circle, I, I think has, um, well, I, I should speak for me, uh, really, you know, I did it because I enjoyed doing it. It wasn't for the money. I really enjoyed doing it. And, and I wanted to give back because over the years I've had so many wonderful instructors that I've learned from. So I, I just wanted to add that footnote. Sure, yeah, for me, I was never wanting to go to a teaching school. I wanted to be at an R1. I went into academia to research things and be a lifelong learner and a lifelong writer. And um, after three or four years on the job market, unsuccessfully trying to land a professorship, realized, you know what? Professors don't even get paid to research, really. Like 40 hours a week is taken up just with teaching prep, teaching, grading, sitting on committees, office hours. And it's at the end of 40 hours a week that they cram in time for their own research and their own writing. And they get paid terribly and have to live somewhere they don't have any control over choosing. And like, if that's the reality, I might as well work a job that pays me better, that I can work from close to family and do my own research and writing after my 40 hours a week. And so, you know, now I'm gonna start my job as a UX, a user researcher on Monday with a company. Mazel tov. Thank you. I, it took 11 months of applying for jobs, two hours a day, five days a week to finally get this job. Wow. So if you are trying to transition out of academia into industry, especially if you're trying to go from social sciences to UX research, 
just know it is not nearly as easy as people on LinkedIn make it seem. And that's okay. Just keep doing it. Just It's a numbers game. Keep going. And if you need an example of a successful resume, you can download mine from my website. I also kept my academic CV up there as a comparison for people who are trying to make this transition. So that's a resource for you. <laughs> yeah. Oh, is that the like 15 page academic CV? It is, it uh, is, I have it here, yeah. <laughs> yeah, see, I distilled that down to a one page industry resume. I saw that too on yeah. your site, which by that the way, we should mention, thing. we should mention yeah. the site, it's www.halanadarwin.com. Yes, and it has all my articles for free downloads as well as all of the podcasts I do. Um, so anyway, uh, yeah, part of my joy in transitioning out of academia is that I experienced it as a very, very, very dark, very abusive place full of people protecting the power structure, people protecting the famous professors who brought in a lot of money and um, the systems that were presumably there to protect victims in fact, only protecting the institution and um, putting me in a very, very difficult position in the process and feeling like the system was designed to push me out after I experienced abuse. They did not want to deal with me. It was structured to watch me fail and um, either drop out of the program or kill myself or die because I was having to drink a lot to cope and I was really spiraling. And I, again, feel like that's part of the design um, because no help is offered. And the only help that is offered if you're experiencing abuse in the academy is through counseling centers on campus where you can't necessarily trust that things you say won't get leaked to the wrong people who you're scared of and where Title IX is only really there to protect the institution's liability and will force you to re-traumatize yourself by telling your story, even if you tell them you don't consent, if somebody else files the report. Um, a system where there's mandatory bystanders who, if you confide in the wrong people about what you're going through, will be in fear of their own jobs and basically rat you out and put you in danger of retaliation from the person abusing you. Um, so I lived with all of this for the entirety of my program since I experienced my abuse two weeks into my seven years there. Um, I had already been getting groomed for a solid year in email correspondence with the person who I went there to work with and at that point had shaped my life around committing to working with him for five to seven years and didn't really have a plan B or an escape route. So after he abused me, I had to just stick it out. Um, and that semester, he was my professor for six hours a day on Mondays, back-to-back three-hour seminars. And I... Uh, literally had no escape from him. And he was also the person who I was relying on getting my funding through once my TA 
stipend ran out four years later. And I knew he didn't have to give me that funding. So I had to keep him liking me enough that he would choose to give me that funding four years later after the abuse occurred. Um, so I, I was in a lot of cognitive dissonance. I needed to keep my abuser happy and liking me and attracted to me so that he would keep paying me attention because I could see that he only paid attention to people who he found attractive. Um, and at the same time, struggling with hating him and uh, realizing that he had abused me, but not really allowing myself to fully accept that fact and trying to tell myself that it was more consensual than that or um, that it had somehow been my fault too. And it's all very typical stuff that people go through when they're abused by somebody who very explicitly has power over their life. Um, I called a help hotline at one point when I realized I was blacking out from stress episodes and told them I thought I had Stockholm syndrome and um, realized that I didn't have a way out. So uh, I started telling more and more people very selectively because I felt like I was raising a lot of eyebrows and I needed there to be at least one person in every class who was a safe person who understood that I was going through a really traumatic time and could sympathize with me and not just treat me like a monster or like somebody who's too angry or like whatever. Uh, hot mess express, which I was, but for a reason that was not my fault. Um, yeah, and I, I kept on publishing. I did a lot of work during that time in part because I wanted to make him proud of me I wanted to impress him. I wanted to keep his affection and his attention so I would get my funding. Um, at a certain point, it turned into my way to get out of there. I figured if I just published enough, I would get a job offer for sure and would be able to move on with my life and never talk to him again. Um, and then a month before I hit the job market, somebody else told the press about being abused by him during the Me Too movement. And it made huge news headlines and um, everything that I had been planning and staying quiet for and trying to strategize to get out of there kind of blew up in my face because everything I was terrified would happen, happened. He fell from grace. His name didn't mean shit anymore. I couldn't use him as a letter of recommendation on the job market anymore. Um, he couldn't help me network. Um, my funding didn't go away because somebody else took over for his center at, for a few more years. And so I did get my funding in the end. But all the other reasons why I had stayed quiet all that time were suddenly gone. And once I realized that it was never going to happen, that between being too negative for too many years and raising too many eyebrows during my spiral and no longer having a world famous advisor who could help me out, um, that I was never going to get a job. And so decided to finally confirm that the rumors about him were true. Um, which I did on his birthday through a tweet that made its rounds. And uh, actually, 
comes up in Google image searches for me, which I have mixed feelings about because I later deleted it. Um, but just, you know, really making sure that everyone knew that it was in fact true because when I reached out to journalists to be like, let me confirm the stories so that he can't hide behind innocence, nobody would return my emails. So they profited off of breaking the news of it being a possibility, but left it hanging there, leaving him the illusion of hearsay and innocence and have not done what I view as their moral and ethical duty to me and other survivors of him by publishing a follow-up that says, yeah, okay, someone on the record is willing to say this is true instead of just this anonymous whistleblower. Uh, so his Wikipedia page still allows him to pretend he's innocent. And recently, the American Sociological Association tweeted some sort of promotion of work he's doing. So they're still trying to leave the door open for a comeback for him. Uh, so I do a lot of tweeting and awareness raising around this issue since... Um, as much as people like to say that the Me Too movement has had an impact, there still isn't the type of institutional change that we need to see to protect people. There still aren't support groups at conferences for Me Too PhD survivors to go find each other and find a safe space where they can talk. Um, and there still isn't real justice being done. It's incredibly hard and on the backs of traumatized people to try to get any sort of consequence whatsoever once they feel safe enough to pursue it. So the big thing is that my case led to um, the American Sociological Association dropping their statute of limitations that they had had in place. That meant that any abuse older than five years um, doesn't count, which obviously if you wait until you graduate from a program to report abuse from somebody who had power over you, that's gonna be more than five years later. Or if Correct. you experience yeah. abuse as an incoming professor who's new from a senior professor who has power over you and you wait until they retire, then again, it's more than five years. But that sure. doesn't mean that these people should get away with it or that they should be allowed to keep attending conferences where all their victims might be not going and having professional consequences as a result because being so terrified of running into you. Um, so there's a lot of work that still needs to be done, a lot of change that still needs to be made. Um, ASA never announced that they dropped that statute of limitations, nor have they encouraged people who have been sitting on accusations to come forward, even though I have directly and repeatedly challenged them to do so and invited them to do so. They are pointedly ignoring me. And it doesn't take a genius to figure out. It's because people in power in the ASA have abused people more than five years ago. And it's a bunch of old white cishet men who don't want the floodgates to open and don't want to experience consequences. So the whole system is incredibly corrupt. And I know it's not just limited to sociology, especially when these powerful figures travel the world giving lectures to starstruck people in different countries who they can then sexually abuse and fly off and never experience repercussions because they're so famous the retaliation would be too scary right. for 
have the power of knowing that a letter of recommendation from them can make or break your career and that you would never dare speak out against them because they can ruin you. Um, the whole system is set up to give people incredible amounts of power that they can abuse with very little effort and with very little anxiety about it coming back to bite them later on. Have there been others that have come out like you have? About him specifically? Uh, no, just in, in the academic circles. Uh, not many. There okay. have been a few. Yeah, you can. There have been a few. I mean, um, I don't have an exhaustive list in mind. I know Stephen Cohen, who did a lot of work slandering intermarriage and calling it the death knell of Judaism through allegedly unimpeachable scientific evidence, uh, got outed as a serial sexual harasser um, and sexual abuser of Jewish women. Um, and telling Jewish women that if their womb isn't being used, it's a waste of a Jewish womb and things like that. Um, I know, um, what's her name? Avital something um, at NYU was reported for sexually harassing a gay student of hers and uh, making it seem like it didn't count because he was gay and she was lesbian, but touching him in ways that made him incredibly uncomfortable and also emotionally and verbally abusing him throughout the years. And when he came out about it, all of her powerful friends, including Judith Butler, signed on to a letter being like, she couldn't possibly have done this. She's our friend. We've never seen her act this way, so it couldn't have happened. Um, and I still, can't forgive Judith Butler for that. Right. Uh, and this guy's career got completely ruined in the process. Um, and also a uh, female professor, something Wicks, Amy, I wanna say Amy Wilkes, Amy something uh, at Boulder, got University of Boulder, got outed at around the same time as Michael for um, sexually harassing her graduate students by talking in really like way too much depth about her sex life and asking them about theirs and possibly more. Um, so that's just, those are just the people who come to my mind, like just okay. off the top of my mind. I'm sure there have been more. Um, and the professor is in, Karen Kelsky has a great resource on her website for people to anonymously add their um, stories or the people who they've experienced this stuff from to a list so that people can sort of like know if their person is on a list already or if maybe they shouldn't go to that grad school because wow. that person is on the list. But you know, this is very much like the beginning stages of people trying to figure out what the heck to do about this. And I, I do get messages on Twitter from people who are under NDAs, non-disclosure agreements, right. who signed away their right to talk about what happened to them um, and really regret having done that, but didn't see any other option at the time when they were coerced into it. Uh, and so there are a lot of abusers out there who we don't even know about. Because oh, absolutely. Yeah. 
they have that. And even my Title IX department told me when I realized Michael, Michael Kimmel, my abuser, was still on the payroll as um, um, somebody who was allegedly just taking leave of absence. And I realized that by staying quiet, I was literally giving him that money and he was playing chicken with me. Uh, and that I had to do something about it. So I finally very belatedly went through Title IX and they told me that if it came down to him contesting it and me having to like go in front of him to tell my story and giving him, um, you know, a chance to defend himself and if ultimately I won or whatever, that I would have to sign an NDA as part of the deal to get sanctions for him. And I told them, I will never sign away my right to talk about this. Wow. So one and reason why I talk about it so openly is because I can. I know correct. I never signed an NDA. I know I didn't. Right. And also, what can he do to me now? He already got outed by somebody else. He can't accuse me of ruining his career. Somebody correct. else did that. Right, right. <laughs> and and uh, I, I do want to acknowledge um lift our voices which uh, i don't know if you're familiar with them liftourvoices.org but they support an end to mandatory ndas confidentiality provisions and forced arbitration through ad advocacy counseling support and information services that's and uh, and that's something that was started uh, by julie Rajinsky, gretchen carlson and diana falzone um and you know, you know Gretchen's history uh, when she when she left Fox News, and um, you know, uh, I think it's a it's a great organization, a great nonprofit that they've started to do away with NDAs because there's so many NDAs around, you know. And to your point, we don't even know how many are out there, you know. Yeah. Um, but uh, liftourvoices.org definitely uh, check them out. And you can follow them on Twitter, Lift Our Voices US. Um, I would strongly recommend uh, that our listeners connect with them as well. And it's uh, not it's not just NDAs, that's the problem. It's also mandatory reporting. Correct. So yeah. I mean mandatory reporting is great insofar as it protects the institution from the liability of having an abuser on faculty. Right. However, it is not centering the interests of the victim who is being abused, who told someone in confidence because they needed help and support in that moment and protection from retaliation. And by reporting, you are making that victim's worst fears come true, which is that their abuser is gonna find out that they talked and possibly hurt them. Correct. Professionally or physically. And I, I, and I just want to mention, this is something that uh, Lift Our Voices just recently uh, had put out, and that is 38% uh, of LGBTQ plus employees reported experiencing harassment at work, according to a report by Williams Policy. Forced arbitration clauses and non-disclosure agreements allow abusers to go unpunished. Join us in being the change. Mm hmm 38%. That's a significant number. Yeah. And, 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 and of course, you know, that's of the reports they know of, right? So, mm -hmm. so that right there tells me that that number is actually 
is actually much higher. But that yeah. was uh, that was done uh, according to a report done by the Williams Institute. You can also follow them on Twitter at Williams Policy. Um, um, Alana, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for um, having me. And you can follow me on Twitter at Alana Darwin, which I'm sure will be included when you promote this on your Twitter. Absolutely. And, and also uh, visit her website, halanadarwin.com. Buy my book. Uh, and buy her book. And, and, we're, and we're waiting on, on the second one. I know. So, I, so, I know. I have 300 pages of a transcript or, or of a manuscript already. The issue is I have to go back and revise it to be more in keeping with the memoir genre, which I knew to. Gotcha. Gotcha. But, but you know, the, my kids just came home and my door is open, so it's very loud. Okay, no problem, no problem. Um, but, um, you know, once that book is ready, you'll have to come back sure. so we can talk more about that. And and I also I also want to applaud you for your courage. Thank you. Um, I, I really applaud you for your courage, uh, not only in, in talking about, you know, Me Too, PhD, a trauma memoir, but also talking about all the other subjects that, that you focus on that are not popular. They're not popular topics, you know? Um, and, 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 and I'm sure you get a lot of pushback and a lot of negative comments coming at you. Um, so I, I really apl applaud you um, and, and your courage. Provocateur. <laughs> and, and I really give you, uh, give you uh, a, a lot of, uh, a lot of accolades for that. Thank you. Um, you know, the personal is political. It really is. Yeah, and absolutely. The people are too scared to talk about are the things that people are feeling really alone in and really need people to talk about. Yeah. So that's what yeah. I try to do. So, you know, when you get a chance, I need you to uh, send me a photo from Chittenden, wave into the Hudson. <laughs> All right. Deal. I missed that view. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. All right. Have a good day. So you've been tuned to the Michael Calderon show. We thank you so much for tuning in. If you want to listen to a previous broadcast, you may uh, listen on Anchor, Spotify, Apple iTunes, and certainly a lot more platforms out there. Just Google the Michael Calderon show. We thank you so much for tuning in.